You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you guys. Uh, If you're uh, visiting with us, you're new with us this morning, my name's Joe, one of the leaders here. I'm uh, excited to jump into the Gospel of Luke with you again this morning. You guys ready to dive into Luke? Cool. Let me pray for us real quick, and we're going to do that. Father, we just bless you this morning. Lord, as we gather uh, with your word open in front of us, Lord, I pray that you you would just speak to our hearts this morning, that you would speak to our minds this morning, that you would continue the change that your spirit has begun in many of us in this room and begin change in some um, this morning as well. Lord, I pray that, I pray that this section of text would just um, reveal to us the, the depth of your friendship and your love towards us. Lord, we know that you are a friend of sinners. And each one of us in this room comes to you really needy for you as our friend. Each one of us in this room comes to you as a sinner in need of grace. Each one of us in this room comes to you in need of your sanctifying and cleansing and changing presence. Help us, Lord, to hear from your word um, with open hearts and open minds. Lord, help our lives to just honor you. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Amen. Amen. Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 35. Let me read for us. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. (coughs) And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Verse 24, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just 
having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. <coughs> to what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. So I want you to think with me just for a minute, okay? As we just read through this text in Luke, as we continue our study this morning, we land smack dab in the middle of Luke chapter 7, and John the Baptist sends these messengers to talk to Jesus, and he's basically like, yo, bro, are you the guy or are you not? Like, are you really going to come through or are you not going to come through? So think with me for a minute about friendship and think with me about John the Baptist and Jesus and think about their friendship and their relationship because they're cousins, right? I mean, they're pretty close. In this moment, as John sends his messengers to Jesus, John is sitting in prison. So let's just think with me about the expectations that John must have had for Jesus Think about it. Like John baptized Jesus, right? John preached a message in the womb of his mother when he leaped for joy when Mary, pregnant with Jesus, came to visit. I mean, John was the forerunner for Jesus. He was the one that was like, all hail the king, guys. He's coming to visit. Like, this is, this is the one we've been waiting for. And then John does what John does, and he confronts sin in the king, right? Winds up getting thrown in jail by Herod because Herod is ticked that John the Baptist had confronted him for sleeping with his brother's sister as well as many other evil things that the king has done. And so, so now John is sitting in, in prison and he's just wondering like, what's going on here? Like, put yourself in John's shoes for a minute because if you had been there and if you had heard Jesus preaching this message, right, when he preached from Isaiah, remember that, in chapter like four? When he stands up in the synagogue and he's like, yo guys, like I'm going to bring back sight to the blind. I'm going I'm to release uh, the oppressed. I'm going to set the prisoners free. I'm going to do all these whack, crazy, cool things. I came here to preach the gospel, right? And if you're John the Baptist, you're thinking, dude, this is like apex moment. This is cool. My boy Jesus is reaching it. He's in the middle of things. People turn their attention to him. And then just, just think about it. a few weeks later, you get thrown in jail after all the great things you've done for Jesus, right? You get thrown in jail. And you've got to be sitting there and you've got to be thinking like, didn't Jesus say that he came to set the captives free? So when's Jesus going to come set me free? I mean, like, I've got to be one of the first ones going to come set free because I'm like his prophet, right? I mean, if you're in John the Baptist's shoes, these are some of the things that you're possibly thinking as you're sitting in your jail cell. He said he would set the captives free. I was his prophet. I went all the way for him. But imagine the discouragement 
that might set in and the disappointment that might set in over time as you hear word back from other people that, man, Jesus is out drinking with people in their homes, right? He's hanging out with prostitutes and tax collectors, the sinners, and you know that he came to save them. You know that he came to set them free, and you know that you're part of that crowd too, but you're beginning to wonder, like, is he going to quit partying and come get me out of jail? Like, at some point you ask that question. I just draw this into your own heart and your own mind for a minute and just think about this. Think about that season when you begin to follow Jesus. Or think about those seasons when you begin to recommit your life to Jesus like over and over again. Think about your own struggle with sin. Think about the times that you thought, man, I thought that following Jesus was going to be easier. Like, I thought that this life was not going to be as hard. Like, my old life, it sucked. Like it was bad. And I started following Jesus because I wanted my life to change. Imagine the disappointment. We've all been there. We've all faced that. We've all faced that in those moments when we say, why am I still struggling with this sin in my life? Why am I not yet perfect? We all get the head answer. Yeah, we know we're not in heaven yet. We know that. We begin to wonder, like, what's it going to take for Jesus to set us free from these things that drag us down? What's it going to take for us to see change? And then what happens in the midst of that? <coughs> Our expectations are not being met. And we begin to realize, hey, I had these expectations of what the Christian life would be like, and it's not quite what I thought it would be. And in the midst of that, you might begin to doubt. Because Jesus really who he says he is? I mean, could Jesus really do what the scriptures say he can do? How am I to continue to trust and follow and walk in this way when life at times just feels like difficulty and disappointment, right? That's the story that we dive into today. Think with me about all of this in terms of friendship. Like we've all had friendships. We all have friendships. We've all tasted the disappointment of friendships. We've all had that friend who backstabbed us. We've all had that friend who let us down. We've all had that friend who shamed us. We all have had that friend who have hurt us. And, and if we're going to be really honest and humility this morning, we would all have to say that we have simultaneously also been that friend as well. We've hurt people We've shamed people. We've let people down. We've not met expectations. We've been selfish as we've engaged relationships. There's all different kinds of relationships that we can dig into, right? There's some that are just merely utilitarian. Like I'm in this relationship for what I get out of it. Like the guy at the bank, he's kind of a friend. <coughs> but it's a utilitarian friendship that he and I have. I mean, we're not barbecuing every Friday, and he's not the first person I call when something goes on tilt in my life. It's a utilitarian friendship. He manages my bank accounts, keeps me notified if they start to go in the hole. And then we've also had friendships that were just merely casual, right? Just casual interests. Like, for me, this looks like some of the guys that I sometimes ride motorcycles with. I go ride a motorcycle with you sometimes, and, and we're kind of have some of the same casual interests. Uh, some of the other Acts 29 and Converge church planners, these are casual interest friendships. 
We have some of the same interests when it comes to church planting and seeing the gospel produced and so on and so forth. There's some, some more depth to that friendship than there is utilitarian. But the relationships that are the most important are those ones that are gospel-centric or gospel-centered, the ones where Christ is at the center of those relationships. And listen, you can tell me that by going down and sitting at the local bar and drinking a beer and having a conversation with the bartender means that that was a gospel-centered conversation, and you can just keep lying to yourself. That's not true. Just because you went to a bar, had a beer, had a conversation with a bartender does not make that a gospel-centered relationship. It means you sat at a bar, had a beer, and talked about Jesus. Gospel-centered relationships are where two people actually sit together and share in the wealth of the gospel together. We share our failures. We share our sin. We share our struggles. We share our joy. We share our victories. This is gospel-centered relationships. But just because you have those relationships does not mean that you will not have those moments where there will be disappointment. Because there will be. And we see that in this text. The coolest thing that we see in the text, though, as we work our way through it, is that Jesus, ultimately Jesus, is the best picture that we have of what friendship looks like. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Think about that for a moment. Like, how many people do you give the cold shoulder to because you're like, now they're a Pharisee. Guess what? So are you. Think of how many people you give the cold shoulder to or won't hang out with or won't talk to you because their interests are different than yours. Guess what? Your interests are different than Christ and he died for you. Jesus is the friend of sinners and he never leaves you. He never forsakes you. He never abandons you. He never doubts you. He never shames you. He never rejects you and he never ever runs from the mess that's in your life. This is great news for us. Look at the text a little bit more. Notice this first thing, that, that when we look at the text, we, we see that John the Baptist actually doubts Jesus, right? We've all been there. We've talked about that. But the reality is that Jesus isn't rocked by John the Baptist's doubt in any way. Like there's nothing that shakes Jesus in the midst of this. Philip Ryken, as he comments on this text, he says that we all have our doubts, we all have our doubts about the future, about our abilities, about our relationships, about our health, about the meaning of life, and even about God. We all have our doubts. And isn't it a normal part of the human experience for every one of us to face doubt, especially in times of difficulty, hardship, and suffering. Like when that one relationship falls apart or when you struggle with this or that sin again or when you fall into this or that pattern again. Isn't that the moment and isn't that the time when you struggle with doubt the most? This is precisely where we find John the Baptist as he's in prison for speaking out against King Herod. <clears throat> imagine what it must, must have been like again, what it must have been like to be John the Baptist and put yourself in his shoes. Imagine the frustration and the doubt that might have set in in regards to this Messiah King that you had been proclaiming and here he is, he's out hanging out with all the sinners in their homes. But that's the point of the text, that Jesus is a friend of sinners. 
And there's nothing that rocks him. There's nothing that, that gets him on tilt. There's nothing that changes him. He's not rocked by doubt and disappointment. Look at the text again in verses 18 through 27. 18 through 23. And the disciples of John reported all these things to him, right? So he's sitting in prison. His disciples come to him. And they're like, John, have you heard what your boy Jesus is doing? Like he's out there hanging out with the prostitutes. I'm like, some of them are like kissing his feet and doing weird things. And you're here in prison. What do you think about that, John? You really think this is the guy? I mean, that's possibly the conversation that is taking place. And so John, in verse 19, calling two of his disciples to him, he's like, hey, you guys come here. I want you to go talk to Jesus and just ask him, are you the one who is to come? Or should we be looking for somebody else? Like, that is the subtle temptation for each of us when you hit doubt and despair and disappointment. Think about it. Like, when you're doubting and when you're, even when you're disappointed in yourself, it's at that moment where you begin to say, should I be looking for something else to set me free? Like, maybe this church isn't good enough for me. Maybe this church really isn't where it's at. Maybe, maybe I should be at a different church, Right? But maybe this type of habit, maybe this isn't where it is. Maybe I should start reading a different version of the Bible. Like, these are all questions to begin. Maybe, maybe the gospel community I'm part of, maybe that's not really where it's at. Maybe Jesus really isn't working there. And so I should find a different one where Jesus is actually at work and I can be set free. Or maybe I should just find a completely different thing to do altogether. Different hobby, right? Different friends to hang out with. Maybe I should move. Maybe I should move from this place to a different place. Because if I could just move <coughs> away from my problems <clears throat> and move into a different space, maybe I would find safety and health and wealth and prosperity and everything that my heart has always desired. And maybe I'll just be happy when I get there. Maybe if I just had a different job, maybe I could get a different job and everything would be good. This is the question that each and every one of us wrestles with deep down inside. When Jesus doesn't seem to be coming through for you, you typically look somewhere else for a different Messiah. And what happens is you give in to false messiahs and false saviors and functional gospels, but not the gospel. And let me tell you, people who do this the best are us. Like people who have spent time in church for longer than 15 minutes, we do this the best. We live in our blind spots and we speak Christianese and we say, oh, bless the Lord for giving me this new thing. And the reality is the newness of the gospel has worn off and it's become old hat. And so we're looking for something new. And this is, this is partly where John the Baptist is at this morning as he sits in prison. And are you the one that we've all heard about? Or should we be looking for someone else? So he sends these two guys, right, to talk to Jesus. And the text tells us that, that Jesus in that hour, verse 21, in that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, check this, in verse 22. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. So just like underline that. <clears throat> go and tell John what you have seen and heard. This is a primary piece of us as Christians in understanding the gospel and continuing to overcome the doubt that sets into our lives at times is proclaiming the things that we have seen and heard. Think back with me of the times that Jesus has shown up in your life. 
You've seen him at work. You've heard his word. Those seasons that you walk through of intense loneliness, those seasons that you walk through of intense disappointment, those seasons that you walk through of feeling like you're failing in every area of sin, those seasons you can proclaim what you have seen and heard Jesus do in your life and other people's lives previously. This is a key piece of us living out the gospel on a daily basis is actually preaching the gospel message as it is experienced over our lives. It's remembering what we have seen and heard Jesus do. He answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. Say amen, Tyler. Blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who was not offended by me. Now, if you were to turn back to Luke 4, 18 through 19, which we're not going to do in this moment, but you might make a notation of it. If you were to turn back to Luke 4, you'll see Jesus stand up in the synagogue, right? And he grabs the scroll of Isaiah. And he says, this is what I came to do. And by the way, guys, yo, it's me, right? And everybody's like, we're going to kill you. And they try to push him off a cliff or something like that. Right? They're calling out the hitmen with the AKs and the ARs and all those things. In that story, he actually ends what he says here. He almost says verbatim. But what he ends by saying is something to this extent. I'm going to set the captives free. In other words, I'm going to, I'm going to let the captives come out of prison. Notice that he cuts that off the end this time as he sends this message back from John. So put yourself in Jesus' shoes. Jesus knows. John is sending these messengers because he's beginning to doubt because he's sitting in prison. And I haven't set him free. And I could. I do have the power, right? <coughs> and he knows that John has heard this message. And John's got to be thinking, I heard that message. Like, when are you going to set me free? I'm trusting the promises of Scripture. I'm trusting in what Jesus says. When's this going to come true for me? Why isn't it happening right now? I just want you to pause for a minute and I want you to think about you deep inside of your heart. How impatient are you sometimes to see things happen like right now and that impatience actually takes you out of the presence of God into a place of doubting him rather than trusting him. There's an impatience issue taking place and what Jesus does is, is he doesn't give in to the demands of John. He doesn't give in and say, oh, I'm going to come right now and get you out of prison. He actually ends by saying this, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In a sense, he's saying, hey, John, like I'm doing all the things I said that I had come to do. And I'm not going to discontinue doing what I'm doing because this is what I'm called to do. I'm Jesus, right? I'm doing the work. It may not be the way you thought it would be done, but the work is getting done. And don't mistrust the fact that I can't set people free because I will. Don't be offended by me. Blessed is the one who is not offended. I almost get the picture that if, if Jesus could have sent John a text message in prison, right? If he could have sent him a text message and be like, hey, yo, John, dude, I'm not coming to get you out of there. Like, you're going to die there. You're going to die there. Continue to be faithful and steadfast and follow after me. And trust and believe that at one moment, when you leave this earth, you will step foot into heaven and you will be a captive completely set free once and for all. That's the type of trust that we're talking about in this text. 
This is the type of friendship that Jesus offers you and I. The friendship that Jesus offers you and I will not meet our expectations. In fact, here's what I believe, that as you follow Jesus, I believe that his friendship with you will will continue to completely shatter your expectations. Like so often we we say we're going to follow you, Jesus, in this season because of what you can give me. Like I'm trusting you to change this or change that. And sometimes Jesus is like, what if I don't change that? Will will I still be enough for you? That has to be the question for all of us. That Jesus shatters our expectations. And the question is, what expectations do you have of him that he is shattering right now in this moment? And are you willing and able to continue following hard after him though you don't feel him and though it doesn't seem like this is going the way you wish it would? Will you still follow him faithfully? trusting him will you not be offended by his work in this moment in your life and jesus isn't rocked when he hears john's questions of doubt and you think that your doubt or my doubt can actually rock jesus man it can't because jesus is the rock Our doubt doesn't rock him. Like you can take your doubt to him and your failures and your pain and your hurt and your mistrust. And you can say, God, I don't know where you're at right now. Are you really a good father? Really? Are you really the Messiah? You can take that to him. His shoulders are big enough to handle that. Jesus is not rocked. Instead, he continues to do what he came to do. What you and I do and the way that you and I live and the way that you and I think and feel and act has no influence whatsoever on what Jesus does. If Jesus came to do something, he will continue to do that. So Jesus is a friend of sinners who isn't rocked by doubt and disappointment. Notice the second thing in the text, in like verses like 24 through 28. Notice that Jesus affirms his friends too. Jesus is very affirming towards John the Baptist. There was an early church reformer that commented on this text, and what he says is this. He says that there is no reason for anyone to suspect. I mean, stop for a minute. Just catch this. Like, if you're sitting here and you're reading this, and you're thinking that somehow John the Baptist is gone from being a Christian to no longer being a Christian because he questioned Jesus, like, you need to get your framework straight because it's not the case. It's not the case. It's not like there's some big cosmic eraser in the sky where the Holy Spirit is running back and forth between the book of life and, and then the, like the edge of heaven looking down and then back to the book of life. Oh, Eric sinned, erasing his name out of the book of life. Oh, look, he did a good thing. Oh, writing his name back in the book of life now. Oh, look, Tanner, what's that guy doing? Crap, he's out of the book of life. It's, the Holy Spirit is not a cosmic eraser in this, Okay. So if you're viewing Jesus, God, his work, and the gospel in that way, get your framework fixed. Put the right glasses on and know that our God is sovereign. And when he saves you, you're saved. This doesn't give you license to live the way you live if you're living in sin. It's just that that grace is so priceless and so beautiful that we can now say, oh, man, this is Jesus And so now look at John the Baptist with that set of glasses on. We're not talking about a man who lost heart, lost faith, no longer saved, isn't a Christian, needs to pray the sinner's prayer again for the umpteenth gazillionth time at some stupid camp somewhere, okay? That's not the case here. 
Okay? This is just, this is just John the Baptist in prison and he's struggling. Like we struggle because we're human and we're here on earth. The gospel is more powerful than our struggles. And just because we struggle doesn't mean that we don't believe the gospel. And yet, there are times when we struggle because we're not believing the gospel. How about that? Just both, all right? So I'm not letting you off the hook, okay? (laughs) So this early reformer, he says this, is there's no reason for anyone to suspect that John the Baptist has now changed his opinion regarding Jesus. He simply asked for Jesus to reaffirm that he is the one who is to come. John the Baptist isn't accusing Jesus of being a fake or a phony. He's just simply asking Jesus to reaffirm what John has already preached about him. Something wrong with coming to Jesus and say, please reaffirm yourself to me. Please reveal yourself to me once again. Please show yourself to me again. Help me in my unbelief. Help me to believe. This is a good place for us to be. It's a humiliative and a humbling place for us to realize, man, everything that I thought about Jesus, I just need to set that aside for a minute, and I need Jesus to reaffirm himself afresh in my life today. Isn't this what we're all looking for, though, right? Don't we all need to be affirmed every now and then, especially when we doubt? Don't we all need to be strengthened by the, the certainty of who Jesus is. Remember, that's what Luke is writing this gospel for. It's the central theme and thread. All throughout this gospel is the certainty of who Christ is. Luke still wants us to know that we can be certain of the faith that we've placed, the person we've placed our faith in. And listen, your faith is only as strong as the person in whom it's placed. And Luke says, Jesus And you can be certain of him. And if you can be certain of Jesus, then you can be certain that your faith is strong. Because he's the one who gives you your faith. Because he wrote it. He's the author and the perfecter of our faith, according to Hebrews. Isn't it true that we all deal with a certain amount of uncertainty in our lives? Like, dude, we don't know when we're going to die. We don't know when an earthquake is going to pop up and, like, knock over every building around us. We don't know when terrorists might take over, right? We don't know when our heart might just quit beating. There's a lot of uncertainty in our lives. We don't know how long our jobs will last. We don't know if the teachers in our schools are going to be full of integrity or not. We know the stories of our own community and city happening right now, right? We don't have a lot of certainty about what tomorrow brings in many different ways. But the one thing we can be certain of is this. Jesus is who he says he is. And he affirms that to us in many different ways while also affirming each of us in the work that he does in us. Here's the great news. Catch it with me again. Jesus is the friend of sinners. It's not rocked by our doubt and disappointment. And in the midst of that, he affirms himself to his friends. 
In the midst of that, he also affirms his friends. He doesn't just affirm, hey, dude, I am the Messiah. I'm doing my job. I'm doing what I was sent here to do, and I'm still at work, and I don't stop. He doesn't stop there like he could, but then he continues the conversation into a different realm as he begins to talk about John the Baptist. I mean, put yourself in that moment again. If you're just an innocent bystander, an observer, and you're hearing this interaction is taking place, oh, I get it. Okay, so John the Baptist, yeah, cousin of Jesus, Jesus Messiah, uh, John the Baptist, uh, forerunner, prophet, eats bugs and honey. Ew, weird. But he's wondering, he's doubting, right, what's happening with Jesus. And so he sends a couple of people. This is just an observer. You're just an observer and you're looking on. And in a moment, you might begin to say, I wonder, I wonder if that John the Baptist boy really has it all together. I mean, has he fallen off a cliff? Is he doing all right? Is his faith still intact? And so Jesus is like, not only will I affirm to you who I am, but let me affirm to you the work I'm doing in you. And he does that in this example of how he talks about John the Baptist. Look at verses 24 through 48 and and read it with me um, in this lens. Listen, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds, right? Concerning John. He's speaking to the crowds because the crowds just heard all of this. And the crowds are standing there and Jesus knows because Jesus is freaky smart. So Jesus knows what the crowd is thinking. Speaking to them concerning John. He says, hey guys, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? It's kind of like a rhetorical question. Like who wants to answer me? And you can see like somebody's little hand from the back popping up. And it's always a Sunday school answer, right? Jesus, we have to see Jesus. No, no, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about John the Baptist, okay? I'm not talking about me. When you went to see John the Baptist, what did you go to see? Do you go to see a reed shaking in the wind? Like, do you really think that the prophet that was the forerunner to me, the one who actually saw my face, I mean, the coolest prophet of all time. Think about it. Prophets before John the Baptist didn't get to see Jesus face to face while prophesying about him. Prophets today, and we're not going to go there a whole lot, but prophets today as they speak, you could say that preaching is a gift of prophecy. Okay, you could say that. One of the things that... Preachers today don't really get is to be able to stand in the presence of Jesus while putting their arm around the shoulder and be like, yo, hey, this is the guy right here that I've been telling you about. I mean, I get to in a hypothetical sense, but not in a reality physical sense. John the Baptist, man, he had, he was blessed because he got to stand in the presence of Jesus. And Jesus is like, did you go out to see a man that was shaken? You think he's been shaken? He's not a reed in the wind that's been shaken. Let me just tell you. That's what Jesus is saying in this text as he asks these. Then in verse 25, he says, oh, okay, so what then did you go out to see? If it wasn't a reed shaking in the wind, what did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a man dressed in soft clothing? Is that, is that who you went to see, a man dressed in, in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's court. So when you went to see John the Baptist, were you, expecting to see, you weren't expecting to see a guy shaken by the wind, right? You also weren't expecting to see a dude who was dressed all finely and nice and neat and spoke really sophisticated-like. That wasn't who you went to see either, right? It's like he's taking the crowd through, through a remembrance. He's saying, when you, when you began to listen to John as he prophesied about me, who did you go to see? Remember who you went and saw. Remember who John is because he hasn't changed. He's still the same John. If you could flip that forward for us, it's like Jesus could be saying to each of us, remember the work that I began in you 
As Philippians says, remember the work that I began in you because I will not discontinue it until it is complete. And that, that work is not complete until we're standing in heaven, right? He moves on asking his rhetorical questions. Because, all right, you, you didn't go out to see a dude who was shaken by the wind. All right, I get it. All right, so you didn't go out to see a guy that was dressed all in like splendid clothing like Joel Osteen or anything like that, right? Um, you didn't, you, that's not who you went out to see. Okay, all right. So, so let me ask now, uh, let me ask these questions, right? He goes, uh, he goes, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Bingo, right? Yeah, that, that's who, I know that's who you went to see. You know, you can just see Jesus kind of like playing with a smile. I'm like, sometimes when we think of Jesus when he preaches, I think we get the wrong picture. I think in this one, I think he's kind of playful. It's the way I see Jesus. Kind of playing around with the crowd like, you guys are so funny. Like, you went to see a prophet, right? And they're all like, yeah. You mean Jesus wasn't the right answer? What? So he's kind of playing with them. Like, you went out to see a prophet. Yes, you did. You did go out to see a prophet. Look at the text. And I tell you more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face. Like I'm sending my messenger, my prophet, John the Baptist, will stand face to face with Jesus. Before your face. And he will prepare your way before you. I tell you. Now he's speaking to the crowd again, right? <coughs> I tell you, among those born of women, how many of us here were born of women? Just, okay, good. So none of us were incubated in, a, in an incubator in the back, you know, back room of some weird hospital somewhere. Yeah, we're all born of, okay, good. So let me go back to the text. Among those born of women, none is greater than John. None is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Everybody asks this question. What does that mean? Like John the Baptist is greater, but the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he? It's like, what is he, like the Riddler off the Batman? Like Jesus tells riddles now? What's going on, right? Well, this is the story. This is the scoop. It's, it's pretty simple if you look at it this way. John the Baptist was a great man because he stood face to face with Jesus and he prophesied some really amazing things in the culture that he lived and walked in. And he was born of a woman, right? Just like the rest of us in this room, especially the guys. I didn't see any of the girls raise their hands, but I'm, I'm guessing that the girls were born of women too. And so the only ones greater than John the Baptist would be those that were least in the kingdom. The idea behind what Jesus says here is anyone who comes after John the Baptist who believes in Jesus, to some extent, is like least. Because we haven't stood face to face with Jesus, right? John the Baptist did. Like none of us in this room that follow Jesus have believed the gospel message. None of us have stood face to face with Jesus. And so we are least in the kingdom. We're not first on the list. We're like last on the list. But being last on the list we're still greater than John the Baptist. Why? Because we get to experience a faith that is much different than John the Baptist's. We get to experience the friendship of Jesus in our lives in a way that is different than John the Baptist. Namely, because we haven't stood face to face with him. We just get to trust in faith as God gives that to us, as Jesus walks with us as our friends, to some extent blindly without seeing him, but also seeing the work that he does in our midst. And we proclaim those things. So John the Baptist, 
just to reaffirm Jesus is who he says he is. And John the Baptist, he's good. He's all right. That's what Jesus is saying. He hasn't been shaken by the wind. He's never pursued a life of luxury. He's in prison right now, guys. Right? Just give the guy a little bit of a break. He's shackled right now by some things. Give him some grace in the midst of this. He's still my boy. He's still the godly prophet who encountered me in person. And he's still a great man. That's what Jesus is saying. I am who I said I am. John the Baptist is okay. I'm still at work with him. Notice number three, that, that, that people respond in like two different ways, right? There's two responses in the text. There's always two responses. I mean, it's as simple as this. It's either, yes, Jesus, I love you and follow you, or no, Jesus, I hate you and I will not follow you. So when you say, yes, Jesus, I'll follow you, you're admitting that you love him because he loved you first, and now it's becoming reciprocal. And when you say no to Jesus, I will not follow, what you're doing is literally saying, Jesus, I hate you. I'm now your enemy. I'm going to continue being your enemy. I'm not going to move from that to becoming your friend, even though you wanted to be my friend. And so there's these two responses in the text. And C.S. Lewis makes this statement that I think is really interesting and applicable to us, especially in this day and age. C.S. Lewis said, sacred things, listen carefully, sacred things may become profane. Sacred things may become profane by becoming matters of the job. Sacred things may become profane by becoming matters of the job. In other words, we must be careful with our response to Jesus lest our responding to him merely becomes another hoop that we jump through in order to gain something. Listen, guys, we're all about earning. All of us. We're all about earning, jumping through hoops, trying to get Jesus to give us what we believe our hearts desire. And that's the problem, is that we begin to believe a functional gospel that is not the gospel. And in this, what we see happening is some people making sacred things profane by making those things a matter of the job. We all have our doubts, right? We all have our doubts in certain areas of life and certain seasons. We all look to something to affirm us or to give us salvation. We look to our religion. We look to our relationships. These are all good things. These are all sacred things, right? Religion, relationships, careers, possessions, accomplishments. All those things are sacred things. But they become profane when they just become matters of a job. Tools to make us feel better. Tools meant to save us. They become our functional gospels then. When our relationship with Jesus becomes merely utilitarian to us, then the thought of Jesus becomes profane. In other words, Jesus is a friend of sinners who is either accepted or rejected. And when we accept him merely on the basis of what he adds to our lives, or we reject him based upon what he hasn't added to our lives, or how he hasn't met our expectations, then what happens is we then relegate him down to being our servant, and we eventually reject him because he doesn't serve our selfish tendencies and our selfish fantasies. Our response to Jesus says everything about whether we actually accept him or whether we reject him. That Jesus is a friend of sinners who is either accepted or rejected. Let me invite some of our music team to come back up. I'm going to 
wrap up here in just a minute. As we look at the last couple of verses, notice in verses 29 through 30, it says, when all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, now catch the group of people we're talking about, right? When the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God as just having been baptized the baptism of John. But, verse 30, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purposes of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Two responses. You accept Jesus, then you're declaring God as just. If you reject Jesus, then you're rejecting the purposes that God has for you in the message of the gospel. Final couple of verses of verses 31 through 34, and we notice that Jesus steps into the mess of our expectations. Oftentimes we see this happen in marriage most. Most often we see this in marriage. Newlyweds get married. They have these really high expectations like, man, sex is going to be great. The dishes are going to get washed. I'm going to have clean laundry. The kids are never going to throw fits. My wife is just always going to be radiant and beautiful. My husband is always going to be muscular and there for me and protect me and listen to me every time I want to talk about something. And then what happens is marriage doesn't go the way we thought it was going to go and our expectations get shot, right? And then it kind of makes a mess. And this is what Jesus does. He doesn't shy away from the mess that expectation brings. He steps into the middle of it. While the rest of us are running from the mess of expectations. Honestly. While we're running from the mess that comes out of our own unhealthy expectations. Jesus steps into the middle of that. And Philip Ryken says that John the Baptist and Jesus both, listen, violated people's spiritual sensibilities. They both violated people's spiritual sensibilities. In other words, they violated people's spiritual expectations. People expected the forerunner to Jesus to be this super sophisticated suit and tie, like bow tie even, and like neatly trimmed and combed beard, right? And cool shoes and, and the best jeans and, and to be uh, trained by Oxford or Harvard or something like that. Not Harvard the town, but like Harvard the, the school. Like they expected John the Baptist to be neat and prim and tidy. But Jesus, John the Baptist steps on the scene and he's kind of a wild man, right? violates the expectations that people had of him. And then Jesus comes, right? Jesus comes and he's hanging out with sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors, right? I mean, he's got Zacchaeus in his brood. I mean, Zacchaeus, remember the wee little man was he? The chief tax collector who was like the mob boss hitman. That was Zacchaeus and he's got him in his brood. So Jesus violates the expectations, the spiritual sensibilities of the people during that time. He was not what they were looking for. They both do this. No one expected John the Baptist to be loud and obnoxious prophet type who wore clothes of camel's fur and ate bugs and honey. This is the great tension within Christianity for us. It's the great tension that we call grace because grace is unearned favor from God, right? that invites sinners into relationship with Jesus based not on our merits, not on the places that we go, not on the things that we've achieved, not on the things that we've got right, but merely and completely upon what Jesus did and who he is. It's based completely on the cross 
and the empty tomb. Jesus is a friend of sinners who steps in to the mess of our expectations. Listen to these last couple of verses. To what then shall I compare this generation? And what are they like? They're like the children sitting in the marketplace calling to one another. He's just simply saying, man, you guys are like children in a marketplace calling to one another. Like you're just, you're just talking to each other. He says, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. Sang a dirge and you did not weep. Basically he's saying, man, we played wedding music and you didn't dance. You didn't do what we thought you would do. And then he's also saying, hey, uh, we played funeral music for you and you didn't cry. You didn't meet our expectations. He's saying, that's what you're like. You're like people who have these expectations of me and of John the Baptist. And we didn't meet your expectations. And so now you got issues. That's what he's saying. Since John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, you say, yes, demon. So the man has come eating and drinking, you say, look at him, glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Question for you and I is, has Jesus become your friend? Has he really become your friend? Like, do you just have some great religious language? Because we live in a highly religious area. I mean, this area right here, like 70 to 80% of the people in our community would say, yeah, I'm a Christian because I'm affiliated with a Lutheran church, a Baptist church, a Catholic church, a Methodist church, or a non-denominational church, and I go there two or three times a year, or I sit there every Sunday, but no change happens. We live in a highly religious area. The question is, is, is Jesus really your friend? Because he's to be a friend of sinners, and... That's who you and I are. As I wrap this up, let me read this last quote to you. How easy it is to be critical about anything and everything without ever entering into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Some people are always finding fault. They object that the church is either too judgmental or that it's too soft on sin. They say that this or that congregation is not friendly enough or maybe it's a little too friendly. They criticize Christians for being too intellectual or too simple, for being too serious or too emotional. They say the same thing about Jesus. He's too strict for them or he's too permissive. He's too hard to understand or else he's too unsophisticated. And like the Pharisees, catch this, like the Pharisees, they're always looking for some other savior always finding some excuse for not believing in Jesus. The problem is not Jesus. The problem is with them. Jesus is a friend of sinners. He enters into the mess of our expectations. He is who he says he is. Your doubt doesn't rock him. It doesn't rock him. And there's only two responses to him. Either yes, I accept you and God is justified. Or B, I don't accept you, and you're no friend of mine. I am now your enemy. That's the question for us today. Is Jesus the friend of sinners your friend? We pray for us. Father, thank you for our time in the scriptures today. Lord, thank you for this specific section of text. As we wrestle through what it looks like to just be people who have expectations and and to face failure and doubt and disappointment and wonder, what does it look like, Jesus, to continue to follow you, to trust in you, to have faith in you? 
So Lord, as we've wrestled through this today, God, I pray for everyone's hearts here in the room. I pray, God, that you would grab a hold of those places of disappointment, failure, shame, sin, and doubt. And that, God, that you would just paint a big picture of yourself. And that you would paint a big picture of our identity in you. Like in you, there is no longer me. It's just me looking more and more like you, rooted in who you are. So God, pray for any who are here struggling in the areas of our identity, always chasing after this new thing or that new thing, always changing the places that we live and the places that we work and the girlfriend we have this week and the boyfriend that we had that week and the, the show this week and this and that next week. God, just pray for those that are struggling in their identity this morning, that are just seeking to find it in everywhere but you. And Jesus, I pray that you would convince them that you are the only rock of our salvation. I pray, God, that we would hear afresh and anew this morning that even when we are disappointed and our, and our expectations are let down, that, that you don't change and that, honestly, you're probably just shaking up our expectations. But I pray that you would be enough for each and every one of us. I pray that we would call you our friend because we know that you are a friend of sinners. We thank you, Jesus. Amen. Listen, as we, uh, as we close in worship a little bit here, uh, there'll be two of us up front to pray with you for your needs. Um, I ask you just to hang around too because as soon as we're done praying, the kids are gonna come up and share a memory verse with us this morning. So it'll be kind of cool. Um, but really just encourage you, if something in the message struck you, like if you're struggling in doubt, despair, disappointment, sin, you're struggling in some of those areas, man, there'll be a few of us that wanna pray with you because that's what we're here for. So please join me at the front if you need some prayer and we'll, we'll chat with you and pray with you. Thanks for letting me preach to you guys this morning. I love you guys a ton. You're listening to an audio message from The Well. A gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.